morning. It's good to see you again. Um, hope that you had a restful night, and um, we pray that today we will be able to um, worship together in spirit and in truth as God calls us to. Um, I'm going to do the same thing I did last night and plug a book here. Um, this is A Christian's Pocket Guide to Jesus Christ by Mark Jones. It's excellent. It's short. It's incredible. This And, and again, it's an easy read um, in its accessibility. Um, it's an excellent, excellent resource. I highly recommend it. So it's... Um, Mark Jones is the author, and it's called A Christian's Pocket Guide to Jesus Christ. So it's, it's the doctrine of Christ in five short chapters. Um, there's much more that could be said, but he does it very succinctly um, in a way that we can carry around in our pockets and know and think about who is Jesus. Um, so let me, is that better? Okay. Um, so yes, this is A Christian's Pocket Guide to Jesus Christ by Mark Jones. Excellent read. So in our last session, last night, we looked at the God who is. We were reminded of who God is in his essence, that he alone exists in perfection, that he is pure being, maximum of being. He is limitless, immense, without time because he has no need of time, without space because he has no need of space. He's fully present in all places. Fully present, not stretched out. All of God is everywhere. He is pure act without potential to become more than he is because he is already most, most holy, most gracious, most excellent, most good, most wise, most just. He is the God who simply is. He's the God whom no man can see and live. And while this God is worthy of all worship, praise, reverence, and honor, we cannot relate to him in his essence. He is not like us, and we are not like him. And this is both a comfort and a conundrum. It's a comfort because if God was like us, he would faint and grow weary. He would sleep he would be subject to passions as we are. He would be limited, changeable, and weak. So it is very good news that God is not like us. But it also leaves us with this dilemma. How can we know God? How can we be sure that he understands us? And more than that, how can we ever be sure that the just and holy God of heaven and earth will receive poor sinners into his presence? Forgive, love, bless, and adopt them. We need a mediator. We need a go-between to bring God to us and us to God. And the God who is rich in mercy from the beginning of the world chose a people to be holy and beloved. If you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, we'll read verses 12 through 17 again. And as you're turning... I'll remind you of one last thing that we said last night. If this God is so good and infinite and immeasurable, then one sin against this holy God deserves infinite and immeasurable punishment. And that is the crux of our dilemma. This is why we need a mediator. We cannot pay an infinite price that our sins deserve. And we're not guilty of just one, but many. We need a mediator. So let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. God, we come before you um, humbled that you would reveal yourself to us in your word. And Lord, I pray that you would open our minds to truth this morning, that we would worship the one true God through Jesus Christ, your son. In Jesus' name, amen. So put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You see that Paul is God is addressing God's chosen people as holy and beloved? How is this possible that the God who dwells in unapproachable light would count sinners as holy and beloved? It's because God himself, in the person of the Son, added a human nature, and was born as a humble baby, lived the perfect life, and died a sinner's death even though he was not a sinner, and rose again, proving that he has accomplished redemption, reconciliation, the bringing of sinners back to God for all those who believe in him. So I want to take the rest of this session, I want to unpack two things. I want to unpack as best I can the nature of the person of Jesus and then how the human nature of Jesus embodies the compassion of God in the work that he did on earth and is doing even now in heaven. So what is the nature of Jesus? Um, How do you think of him? I asked you last night, who is God? Today, I would ask you, who is Jesus Christ? Who do men say that I am? He asked his disciples. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he is. But he is something that we have never experienced before or since. He is God and man, perfectly joined as one person with two complete, distinct and separate natures so that they are not blended or mixed together. Let me show you some things from scripture that show us Jesus is God, that the person of the Son took on flesh, and he is God himself. Uh, Mark Jones uses this parallel, and he uses scripture verses from Isaiah and revelation and I want you to hear the parallel between the two and you'll see that Jesus is indeed very God of very God so Isaiah 41 4 says who has performed and done this calling the generations from the beginning I the Lord the first and the last I am he and when he says I the Lord It's that proper name of God, I am, Yahweh, the God who is. He's the first and the last, I am he. Revelation 1.17 in John's vision of Jesus, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. Isaiah 44.6 Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, the I am of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Revelation 2.8. Thus says the Lord, thus says I am, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the I am of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Isaiah 48, 12, thus says the Lord, the I am, the King of Israel, 
the what? I'm going to have to look that one up. I uh, did not copy it correctly. All right, let's look it up. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. And Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You hear the parallel? This same God the I am is Jesus, the I am. And we hear it in his own words. Do you remember how often he talked about who he was? And he would say, I am the door, I am the vine. When he did that, he was using the divine name, I am. And we know that they understood him because it made them want to pick up stones and kill him. They understood he was claiming to be God, and he is God, fully God. Everything we said last night about who God is is true of the essence of the person of the Son. He's eternal, incomprehensible, unchanging, infinite, impassable, perfect God. His divine essence is all that we have said about God. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. He is the only wise God. This is who Jesus is in his divinity. But Jesus is not only divine. He is truly man. In John 1, 1 through 5 and verse 14, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is God in flesh. But in thinking about how God is true how Jesus is true man, we should not think of him as some kind of glowing human being. He's not a superhero. The human nature that the person of the son added to his divinity was true humanity. This means that he has a true body and a reasonable soul. It means that Jesus, according to his human nature, took on every characteristic of what it means to be a creature, except without sin. He got hungry. He got tired. He was limited to time and space. He had to think and learn and grow like every human being. He experienced all of human life, what it means to be a human being. He was needy of friendship, of food, of clothing, of lodging. He had to look to his father in faith and rely upon the Holy Spirit every day as he obeyed all God had given him to do. At every moment, he had to exercise the faith that believes what God has said. And this is what he did his whole life through, as he, did, as he did the very will of God day by day. He didn't cheat. He, as a human being, did the will of God. And it's only because of this nature of Jesus, where he is both fully God and fully man, that he's a fitting mediator to bring us to God. Remember that we said that a sin against an infinite God deserves infinite punishment? That means you need an infinitely valuable substitute to take your place. God is of infinite value. 
so only God could substitute. However, he could not identify with us. A substitute has to be of like nature as the one they're substituting for. This is why the blood of bulls and goats could never make atonement, but only pointed forward to Jesus who would come. Mark Jones says this about the union of God and man in the person of the Son. In this union between two natures, there is the greatest distance involved. The creator is identified with a creature. In the union of the two natures, one sees eternity and temporality, eternal blessedness and temporal sorrow, almightiness and weakness omniscience and ignorance, unchangeableness and changeableness, infinity and finitude. All of these disparate attributes come together in the person of Jesus Christ. He is one person who has two distinct natures. He is God and he is man, fully, truly, and completely. Or as Thomas Goodwin put it, when God became man, heaven kissed earth. So I wonder, how do you think of Jesus? Do you think of him as a God whom you cannot approach, with all authority and power and holiness before whom we would tremble? Do you see him as human, a companion and friend? Do you think of him as blended, mostly God, something of a superpowered human? Do you see Christ as the one mediator between God and man? He must be able to fully represent both natures without blending or confusing them into a mixture that is neither God nor man. If Jesus is a blending of God and man, then he cannot be the mediator. He cannot identify with us as true human to substitute, and he cannot atone for us before God as a sacrifice of infinite value. He must be both two separate natures joined in one person. We do not understand this mystery, but we can confess its truthfulness, and we can worship a God who would enter human history to substitute for us. J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, says, had my savior been God only, I might have trusted him, but I never could have come near to him without fear. Had my savior been man only, I might have loved him, but I never could have felt sure that he was able to take away my sins. But blessed be God, my Savior, is God as well as man, and man as well as God. God and so able to deliver me, man and so able to feel with me. So having established that Jesus is true God and true man, I want us to turn to the subject of compassion and look at Jesus' perfect compassion as the true human. You see, compassion from a human perspective is a subset of love. It is love acting, and particularly love acting to relieve suffering or misery. Compassion is love acting to relieve suffering and misery. And Jesus was perfectly compassionate as a true human being. His compassion stands in our place when we lack the compassion we should have. And his death atones for us to bring us back to God. And he shows us an example of what it looks like to live in compassion towards others. So let's look at the compassion of Jesus in life, in his life on earth. As he moved to alleviate the suffering of those around him. So God is love, right? And we said that his love is fully actualized 
And so as God, his compassion never fails. And so the compassion of Jesus as the person of the Son, according to his divinity, never fails. But Jesus also experienced human emotions. They came and went, just like ours do. But he did so perfectly, meaning he always had the emotion he should have had. He always loved what was good, hated what was evil, rejoiced in truth. He always had the emotion he should have had. And he always had perfect compassion towards those around him. But scripture speaks of him often as being moved with compassion. Because compassion is love moved to act, to alleviate suffering. And Jesus, as a true human being, could be moved. He was not pure act in his human nature the way he is in his divine nature. In his divine nature, he's already there. In his human nature, he had to move towards others, and he did. So, as we look at this, I want to look at the incarnation itself. This is the first act in time of God joining himself to human beings in compassion toward us. It's the compassion of God that produced the incarnation. And Jesus comes to us and he brings to us all kinds of gifts in his humanity and divinity. But of all the beautiful gifts he brings to us, the greatest one is the gift of his person himself. He is a gift of infinite value. He's a real person. The object of our faith is a person. He came. He lived. And he has done all that he has done in the person of the Son. According to his human nature, he walked on earth. All the while, according to his divine nature, he was unlimited. Both at the same time. We do not understand this. We do worship. He is of infinite worth. He is the glory of God enfleshed. He is our hope in life and in death. In the incarnation, God gives us the glorious second person of the Trinity so that our hands can handle him. He's truest man and truest God. No other religion has a God who comes to men but we do. God came to us, and in his humanity, he lived in perfect harmony and conformity with the law of God. He shows us what love is and what it does. He perfectly was moved with compassion and compelled to act in relief of suffering. So let's look at Jesus's compassion toward the multitudes. I love to read through the Gospels and see how Jesus handled these crowds and crowds of people who largely did not understand him. He spoke to his disciples, and they listened, and they forgot. He taught them, was patient with them, and compassionate towards their ignorance. But his compassion to these hordes of people, I don't know if you've ever been in a position to minister to large numbers of people, or small numbers of people. I have four of them in my house. <laughs> um, and it becomes overwhelming quickly, right? And there are times when we see Jesus drawing away because they're tired or they need rest, and he gets there, and the crowds are already there ahead of him. And instead of going, here I go again, he believes God's goodness in giving this opportunity and in trust of his father, he's moved with compassion towards these crowds, and he ministers to them. Matthew 9, 36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And Mark 6, 34 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Notice Jesus' concern for them. 
He knew they needed instruction. He was caring of them. He cared that they have leadership, that they have someone to guide them, to show them how to live. He knew that they were harassed and helpless. And he wanted to bring them comfort in their need. And so he spoke to them as the prophet of God. The children's catechism asks and answers this question. How is Christ a prophet? Because he teaches us the will of God. And Jesus did not just teach the crowds or us the will of God. He embodied it. He lived the will of God. He had come to do the will of his father. His food was to do the will of his father. It was to walk in obedience to God. And so he sat with the crowds and he taught them. He taught them the depth and the breadth of the law of God. You can find this in the Sermon on the Mount. He showed them that the law God had revealed has always pierced to the heart. It has always been true that murder is not just with physical hands, but with anger and hatred in the heart. It's always been true that adultery is not merely physical, but also in lust in the heart. And he taught them himself as the escape from sin. He taught them himself as the bread of life, the one on whom we are to feed. He taught them himself as the one who has come to give weak and burdened people rest for their souls. And he called them to come to him for forgiveness of sins. And today he still speaks as the prophet of God. He teaches us the will of God. He teaches us that all that the Father has given him will come to him, and none of them will perish. This is the will of God. He teaches us that we can cast our burdens on him because he cares for us. He teaches us that his love for us is what constrains us to love him. He teaches us how to walk in his will. And he gives believers the rights to be called sons of God. Have you ever wondered why it doesn't say sons and daughters? There's a real reason. In that day and time, sons inherited and only sons. So you and I, we are sons of God because we inherit every blessing Jesus earned. He gives us the right to be sons of God. He teaches us that this is what God does. But then the catechism goes on and asks a question that I've never been quite comfortable with. It says, why do you need Christ as a prophet? And the answer is, because I am ignorant. I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like to own up to being ignorant. I mean, I'm happy to tell you that I'm ignorant of, you know, theoretical physics or higher levels of math or foreign languages or thermonuclear dynamics. Totally ignorant on all those subjects. I can say their names. That's about it. Um, but I don't want to own up to being ignorant of how to live. Isn't it of our nature to think we know how to live? We know what's right for us. We know what's best for us. We know how to accomplish the goals that we have. We know how to get the life we so much desire out of this world. But it's not true. The natural man is ignorant of the ways of God. We need Christ as our prophet to teach us how to live in Christ, under Christ, as God would have us, the very best way to live in a broken and sinful world. And he does. In fact, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He teaches us what real and true life is. Not that we can find a way to slake our thirst with the pleasures of this, of this world while also figuring out how to minimize the consequences of sin. This is not what he teaches us. He teaches us that he himself is life. And this is eternal life, that they know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The heart of faith looks into the eyes of the word of God enfleshed 
and believes what God has said. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It is not just quantity of life, but it is quality of life. It is that we know him now, and this is life. It is not as though we know Jesus in order to have life. No, he himself is life, and to know him is to know life, and to know it more abundantly. And if that is true, then we can live, can't we? We can live in this world doing what God has said, trusting him with the outcome of all of that because he himself is life and no one can pluck us out of his hand and no thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so we do not have to fear in a world that's very scary because we have Christ and he is life. This is what he teaches us to believe and then to live believing he knows better than I do. Always better than I do. His way is perfect. But even as Jesus taught the people and had compassion on their minds and souls to teach them the word of God and to show them the will of God in his life, he had compassion on their bodies as well. Matthew 14, 14 says, when he was ashore, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Mark 8, 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. We know that Jesus went on and fed them, right? He fed them real food for their bodies because he cared about their bodies. He understood that people are true body and true soul together and that bodies must be cared for. And in caring for their bodies, in healing the sick, and in raising the dead as he did, he was turning back the curse and showing that the kingdom of God had entered into the world. He was undoing what the curse had done as a foretaste of how he will fully undo it in the age to come when sin and sickness will be no more and sorrow will depart. But he was also feeding their bodies in obedience to the will of God because part of the command do not murder is to promote life and he had compassion on them and fed their physical bodies and cared for them he gave instead of taking which is part of do not steal but work to have something to give and he gave them and then one day he would give up his own health and life to atone for poor sinners. So let's look at Christ's compassion in his death. Not only did Jesus show compassion in his life, and I, we could go on and on. In fact, I love that John tells us that if all the deeds of Jesus were written, then the world could not contain the books that would be written. So let alone can an hour contain all of the compassion Jesus showed in his life. Um, but I wanted to look at his death. And as Jesus came to show us God and to bring us back to God and to fulfill all righteousness through his sufferings and death, we see the face of God in human form, suffering. God cannot suffer in his divinity because he cannot change. And to suffer would be a decline from perfection. But Jesus in his humanity truly suffered. And in his sufferings and death, he did not cheat. It's not as though, oh, well, he was divine, so it was easy to suffer. He suffered as a real human being. And I don't know about you, but the point at which I struggle to show compassion the most is when I am in pain 
my own sorrow, my own anguish. It is difficult to reach out to others in that moment. So I want you to consider where Jesus was. You remember the scene as Jesus approaches the cross. He had been betrayed by Judas, captured in the garden, abandoned by his disciples, tried before a mock court, denied by Peter, drugged before Pilate, sent to Herod, returned to Pilate, beaten and whipped by soldiers, delivered over to the Jews to crucify. He carried his cross. He was nailed to the tree. And then he hung in the sun, marred, beaten, naked, bloodied, dying. If there was ever a moment to say, well, I need to worry about me, it was that one. And in our place, because we are people who sinfully worry about ourselves too much, Jesus worried about others. And from that cross, he looked at John, his disciple, who had left but come back to the foot of the cross and said, take care of my mother. He kept the fifth commandment while he's hanging on a cross in excruciating pain and agony. He believed God and did what God says. And he honored his mother from the cross. You know, we do not understand what it really was for Jesus to hang there on the cross. We can list all those things that happened to him in his human body. But we do not understand what the unlimited wrath of God is. See, he was not just bearing all the physical suffering. He also bore the unlimited wrath of God against sin. And then think about this. As much as he may teach us to hate sin, we have not yet been fully holy, so we have not yet hated sin as it deserves to be hated. But Jesus in his humanity did. He hated sin as it deserves to be hated. And he understood the wrath of God and what it was to bear it. He hated sin with a perfect hatred and then embraced the cross and endured the shame for the joy set before him. So he was not just suffering in his physical body, but agony of soul as he hung on that cross and remembered his mother. He did this in our place as our substitute. If you find that you struggle with a waning care for others or a desire for suffering to just stop, Jesus endured under suffering in your place. He suffered to turn the Father's wrath away so that we would never know the justice of God poured out on ourselves. And in his suffering, he never sinned, but provided for his family while God spent his justice on him. In Jesus, God counts Jesus' obedience to you and treats you as though you have shown the perfect compassion of Jesus to others. Doesn't this make you love him? Doesn't it make you want to be like him? A little more today than yesterday. A little more this year than last. By degrees, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. But Jesus was not just compassionate to his mother from the cross. He was compassionate to a thief hanging next to him. And if it's difficult to care for others when we are suffering in body and in soul, add to that suffering unjustly. And our indignation wants to rise up and say, I don't deserve this. That person over there, they deserve to suffer. But not me. Not me. This was not Jesus' attitude, even though he is the one of whom it was true. He did not deserve to suffer. And he hung on that cross between two thieves who hurled accusations at him, mocking him. And one of them, in watching the beauty 
of Jesus as he suffered changed his mind because God changed his heart. I said, truly, this man is the son of God. And Jesus had compassion from the cross and rescued this dying thief, this dying thief who could give him nothing, who was going to live but a few more moments in this world. And he chose him as his last friend on earth. And he had compassion on his soul. While he hung there, suffering the just for the unjust. That was truly not fair. And so if we are tempted in our sufferings to think it's not fair, it's not fair, I want to remind you of two things. Fair would give us all hell. And friends, you and I are not in hell. There has not been a day of our lives in which we have received the just due of our sins. And I realize in talking to this room, you may have suffered severely under others' sins. But compared with an eternity in hell, it is not the same thing. We have not suffered what we deserve. And Jesus, in his compassionate death, gives us the grace to endure suffering as a good soldier as we look to him in faith. But the second thing I would remind you of is this, that God is the just judge of all the earth. No one is getting away with anything. If we suffer unjustly at the hands of godless men, we can know that God has suffered this way first in the person of the Son according to his human nature as he hung on that cross. And that while men intended evil toward Jesus, God intended good toward us. And the same is true when we suffer at the hands of men unjustly. What men intend for evil, God intends for good to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we can suffer, looking to Christ, believing him, the one who suffered the just for the unjust. And you know something? He never made the unjust earn his favor or his grace or his goodness. No, while he was dying for sinners, he rescued sinners. And as he was on the cross suffering punishment in our place, he bought the rescue of all who looked to him in faith. He can forgive our struggles to love others and show them compassion. And he can teach us how to show the compassion he has shown to us. But Christ did not just have compassion on his family or toward this repenting thief while he was dying on the cross. He showed compassion toward the very ones who were crucifying him. You remember that the thief was a mocker, but not, humanly speaking, responsible for Christ hanging there on the cross. No, it was the Romans who nailed him there and the Jews who delivered him over. And as Jesus hung, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. This was the heart of Jesus. He prayed for those who persecuted him and despitefully used him. He prayed for us because we are the ones who have despitefully used him. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. This is the compassion of Jesus. It's his compassion as a priest. Turning to the catechism, how was Christ a priest? He died for our sins and pleads with God for us. And why do you need Christ as a priest? Because I am guilty. If I don't like to fess up to being ignorant, I far less like to fess up to being guilty. But it's the truth. And there is only freedom from guilt in confession. As long as we lie to ourselves and tell ourselves that we're not that bad, 
we're mostly good. We deny ourselves the beauty of full and free forgiveness that we don't deserve. To the extent I believe I earn it, to that extent, it is not grace. And to that extent, I do not know the beautiful grace of his forgiveness. So friend, I don't know what sins plague you, what guilt assaults you. But I would encourage you, as hard as it is, take a moment and look it in the face. Acknowledge sin for what it is. And then run to Jesus. He loves to forgive sinners. We can take our sinful souls to him and know that he washes us completely and receives us to himself. He loves to save sinners. Our sins qualify us to go to him. And then we can also know that not only does his death substitute for us, but that he is now in heaven. This person, Jesus Christ, who exists in two natures, God and man, his humanity is located in heaven now. He rose from the dead, proving that his death satisfied the justice of God and bought life, that eternal life, for everyone who believes in him. And now that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working in all of us who believe. And the humanity of Jesus is located in heaven before the throne of God, where we are told in Hebrews that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is praying for you. And he loves to do this. This is his work in heaven having accomplished substitution, salvation for all who believe. He sits in heaven and prays for us according to his work on earth. He prays, Father, receive them to yourself. Make them like me. My blood atoned for their sin. Change them. Transform them, grow them, encourage them, help them, keep them. He prays for us. But he does not just pray for us as from heaven as a priest. He rules from heaven as the king. He is the king of kings. And what does a king do? We'll turn again to the catechism for a brief answer. Christ is a king because he rules over us and he defends us. And why do we need him as a king? Because I am weak and helpless. Again, these are things that we do not like to own up to. Weakness, helplessness. But there is strength and help to be found in Jesus Christ. And so we own up to these things because of this. Christ is ruling over us and defending us. He rules over us as a good king, telling us the good way to live in his kingdom. And he defends us from all of his and our enemies. There is not a single thing that can keep you from entering into heaven when the king of glory, victorious over death, is ruling you and bringing you all the way to heaven. He is the king. And he is the king in heaven. And so we know, by way of application, that while God in his divinity does not suffer, he joined himself to humanity in the person of the Son, and Jesus, as a human being, suffered, and so identifies with us. Hebrews tells us, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the Lord Jesus, who knows pain and sorrow, loss as a true man in a broken world. And he endured this in compassion, a love that moved him. And it moves him still toward you personally in his humanity. As a prophet, he's teaching you the word. As a priest, he is praying that his sacrifice be applied to you. As a king, he is ruling over you and defending you. This is the Christ who came. He perfectly displays the compassion of God in human form. This is God stooping down, identifying with us. This is true manhood bringing us to God. Jesus is worthy of all worship and praise as the God-man, the Christ who came. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would sanctify your word to us, that we would see Jesus, that we would know wonder and worship at God enfleshed. Lord, our minds do not comprehend this, but with our mouths we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, our only hope in life and in death. In Jesus' name, amen.